The Mac Observers, Mac Geekab, episode 883 for Monday, August 2nd, 2021. <laughs> Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observers, Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We take all of those things, we mash them up into an agenda, and then we share them, answering your questions, sharing your tips, sharing your cool stuff found, sharing some of our tips and cool stuff found as well. The goal being that each of us learns exactly or more than at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include TextExpander.com slash podcast, where you get 20% off your first year's subscription LinkedIn jobs at linkedin.com slash MGG, where you can post your first job for free and upstart.com slash MGG, where you can take control of your credit. We'll talk more in depth about each of those uh, in a few minutes here for now here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in fearful Connecticut being overrun by various beasts. <laughs> this is. When we started this show, uh, I had just moved to New Hampshire and Michael Johnston, uh, well, I I was going to say formerly of the iOS show, formerly of We Have Communicators. I suppose he might do another episode of the iOS show someday. But he he was uh, a Mac Geekab listener and started doing our chapterizations for us before he figured out a way for uh, to do them internally in real time. Uh, but he was doing those for us for many years, probably 10 years, I would say. And early, early on, uh, anytime I would describe my, my house here in New Hampshire, he would draw like this. He had this drawing that would come up in the, the enhanced AAC feed that had like this house in the woods with like bears and things like that. Um, and, uh, and it always made me laugh. I, I wish I could find that drawing. I suppose it's embedded in some of our, uh, our old episodes. I'd have to go digging through them to find it, but, uh, but it always made me laugh. And so when you said you had beasts, it reminded me of that. So hope Michael's doing well. In fact, I know Michael's doing well. He's literally a rocket scientist now working for uh, JPL. So, Oh yeah. 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 He, uh, when we were out there in LA uh, as a family, a couple of years ago, he gave us a tour of, of JPL and uh, including a, a glimpse of the now on Mars Rover. So it's pretty cool to be able to see all that. So, nice. Yeah. 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 Uh, let's do some quick tips, shall we? Indeed. All right. Uh, Tony brings us our first one. He says, just as a reminder, you can go directly to any preference pane uh, if you use Alfred, the uh, shortcut master there. Uh, for example, activate Alfred with your keyboard shortcut and then start to type doc. And usually with just a couple of characters, it will give you an option to go to the preference pane for Doc. Start to type keyboard. Same thing happens. As I remember, I've been able to get directly to any sub item directly. Of course, if you have you have to know the name of the item that you are wanting to access. Of course, that's sort of the that comes part and parcel with shortcuts, right, is is knowing what you want to do and then and then just getting there. So, yeah, thanks for that, Tony. It's I, I you know, Alfred's one of those productivity apps that every time we talk about it i think i should be using it but it it has not made its way into my default vernacular yet if that's likewise yeah is that yeah 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 i it it but it's one that like 
I don't know. It, it, it probably should be on my list. So. All right. Uh, moving on to Matt here. Matt shares with us a quick tip about the iPad uh, and uh, and floating apps, slide over apps really is, I guess, what we want to call them. He says, I love being able to switch main windows in iPad OS by swiping the the little line at the bottom that simu- that that is the replacement for the home button on non home button iPads. Uh, he says, I love being able to switch uh, apps by just sliding the home button left or right. I recently accidentally found that slide over apps and floating windows are actually persistent and uh, you can switch between those in rotation the same way by sliding the little at the bottom of each of those. There's a little home slider as well, and you can just slide left and right to get from one app to the other. I don't know that I ever noticed this, Matt. So thank you. I, you know, multitasking on the iPad. I'm, I have not installed the iOS 15 beta on my iPad yet, uh, but I am, or the iPad OS 15 beta to be more correct, but uh, I am eager for the improvements in the UX of multitasking because I always get lost whenever I get into like split window view. And I mean, I sometimes intentionally get myself there, but then it's like, wait, how do I get out of this again? What do I do? It's just not intuitive to me and clearly wasn't intuitive to lots of people with Apple uh, having changed sort of the, the way it exposes what to do next in iPad OS 15. So I'm looking forward to that. So thank you for this, Matt. That's great to know. I, uh, I always feel like whatever window I have floating it, it like in order to replace it, I have to figure out a way to like swipe it out of the way and bring a new one in and all of that. So yeah, pretty good. I like it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the, um, being able to, to jump between Mac OS and iPad OS. Uh, Say that again. Uh, the the thing they demonstrated where you could bop between Mac OS and iPad OS. What am I missing here? Like what? How, how can on what device can you go from Mac OS to iPad OS? Um, I thought that was something they demonstrated at a recent event. Yeah, but on what device would this happen? Well, I, you, I you realize I might ju- be missing something. You, you can jump from Mac OS to iPad OS. On what right? device? Like on a Mac, on an iPad, on an Android yes. tablet? Like wh- which? Yes. Both. You don't remember that from the, the, the event? Uh, no, I'm not. It was kind of like sidecar, but better. Okay. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. The enhancements to sidecars. Right. So you're not actually running Mac OS on an iPad or, mm. or but Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm remembering something about this, but it's not, I don't have a clear memory of how it worked. I'll have to go revisit that. Or if you find a link in the, the enhanced continuity, according to hog Molly in the yes. chat room at live.macgeekup.com. Thank you, hog Molly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So that's, that's, um, is it bi-directional though? Can you get like iPad OS screens on your Mac? That part was lost on me. If that, if that was the case. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the case. Interesting. So, all right. Okay. Enhanced continuity on Mac OS. Okay. A hog Molly saying not that, uh, not that she saw you got, you got somebody rolling into your house there. Uh, 
hope not. <laughs> uh, with the new operating system, Apple introduces universal control, which provides continuity by allowing users to effortlessly move between devices using a single mouse and keyboard. Right, right. Okay, this part I remember. Okay, so it's you. It's the 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 uh, wireless KVM switch that your device, that your Mac device, mm. becomes for your iPad. Okay, got it. That makes sense. All right, I'll put a uh, I'll put a link to this article about it. Um, okay. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, yeah. No, it's I like the the stuff that they're doing to iPad OS is. Uh, meaningful in my opinion. So yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah, let's move it on to Jeff and thank you, hog Molly. Thanks everybody in the chat room for helping us out during the show. Live.macgeekab.com. Uh, listener Jeff has our final, what I think is our final quick tip of the day. Uh, I'm not sure if you talked about this before, but on the last show, you mentioned moving your dock between monitors to move your dock to the monitor you want. Uh, all you have to do is bring your mouse pointer to the bottom of the screen and hold it there for a second. Your dock will disappear from the monitor it's on and pop up on the new monitor. That is correct if you keep your dock on the bottom of the screen. If you keep your dock on the left or the right, it will live on the uh, leftmost edge of your entire screen real estate or the light, the rightmost edge of your entire screen real estate. Uh, so if you have three monitors and you put it on the left, it will be on the left of the leftmost monitor, the right, the same with the rightmost monitor. But you, but Jeff is absolutely right. If you keep your dock in the default position at the bottom, uh, if you want it to move to another screen, just float to the bottom and it will join you. So yes, thank you for that, Jeff. That's good stuff. I forget about this because I am a left side of the screen dock person. I have far more. Uh, um, <clears throat> Well, I have far more horizontal real estate than I have vertical real estate on any of my screens. This is a truth, right? So because they're wider than they are tall. Uh, and if you have multiple screens, that then is amplified. And so I found very quickly it, it started on laptops with me where I was like, oh, I hate having the dock eating into my Safari screen space. And I like to have the dock uh, there all the time. It's just a personal preference. And I was like, wait, if I put this on the left side of the screen, then I've got my dock there all the time and I can use the full height of the, the monitor for my browsers and anything else I want to do. And I sort of get the best of both worlds. So I'm using the using the space as it as it is presented to me. Uh, I suppose if I had a um, if I had a, a monitor that was in tall orientation, maybe I'd put the dock at the bottom. But I don't think I would. I, I, I think I'd still keep it on the side because I'm used to it. Now. But, but yeah, that's where that came from. Yeah, not working for me. What's that? Well, I'm I'm moving my cursor to my second screen, and the dock is not following. And you, and you put it at the bottom of the screen. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you just left it there. Huh. I have seen that work. I mean, I've I've certainly done it. Um, mm -hmm. That's interesting that it's not doing it on yours. I wonder. I wonder what other conditions need to be true for that to to happen. Uh, I mean, maybe it's my. Dock and menu bar. Yeah, I'll fiddle with it later. Okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, 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 Hog Molly, again, in the chat room, says slide the mouse down and off the bottom of the second screen. So you've got to really go all the way as though you're scrolling off the screen and then let it hang there. Does that solve it for you, John? 
Mm, no. Okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I think I know the answer. Are you in the old mode where you have one menu bar or in the new mode where you have two menu bars? Uh, I have one menu bar. That's the problem. So you you are uh, in, right, you, you're not in the new uh, paradigm. And when I say new, I mean, I mean, you know, the 10-year-old mm-hmm. paradigm instead of the 20-year-old paradigm. But yeah, if you go to, oh, where is it? It's uh, uh, screen spaces. It's the option that have, oh, it's in mission control. System preferences, mission control. Don't change it now, John, because it'll force you to log out. Mm-hmm. Um but the option in system preferences, mission control oh, okay. defaults to displays have separate spaces up until about a year ago. I was with you. I was with that box off because it seemed weird to me. But now I love it because mm-hmm. one of the things I get is if I'm, say, in an app on my, you know, on my rightmost monitor, I get its menu bar right above me. It's great. So mm-hmm. I, I I recommend making that change. It. It, it's the default, so it's what lots of apps and other things in the OS expect. Not that it breaks things, but obviously it breaks this. Mm-hmm. So because yeah, your your dock isn't going to follow you in, in that point. So that's uh, right. that's the key. Cool. Uh, all right, let's shall we do some cool stuffs found, my friend? Cool. Cool. <laughs> listener Tony, a different listener Tony. We have a lot of Tonys. Uh, it writes and says. One day, when summoning the character viewer using control command space to insert an emoji in a message, I noticed that things looked a little wonky. So I started playing. I learned that you a and this is the this is the key here to all of this. If you invoke the character viewer uh, by default, you're going to see a a collapsed window, the collapsed version of this window with just your emojis there with the frequently used at the top. And then, and then the list and the icons below. If you go into the upper right corner of that and click the little icon that appears, the character viewer grows in size. And now you get a series of menus. And one of the things that you can see in the fourth column or the last column on the right is when you highlight anything and it can be emojis or arrows or bullets and stars, you can choose add to favorites. And now you get add to favorites. Uh, And he says, uh, I learned that you can drag the different sets in the order that you prefer. And the viewer will open to the topmost set of characters, whatever that is. So if you make favorites, your topmost set, well, then that's what it's going to open to. And he says, for now I have it open to the emoji set. Uh, you also have easy access to the characters you use frequently, plus, of course, the favorites. And he reminds us that if we want to add the Apple icon to this, it is option shift. John, do you know the answer? Option shift to get the space bar? No, no. The Apple logo is option shift K. I don't know why uh. it's K, but it is option shift <laughs> K to get the Apple logo. So, uh, So there you go. Uh, yeah. So thank you for that, Tony. Uh, great, great, uh, advice. I don't know. I guess that's a, I, I call it a cool stuff found. I'm not sure if it's a quick tip or what, but you know, it's a cool thing. So nice find my friend. Uh, very good. Moving on. Indeed. Okay. Uh, Dr. Mac has one for us in Mac OS Monterey, Apple's upcoming OS. Uh, Monterey, he says, will make it easier to prep your old Mac for sale or donation. With a new menu item in system preferences that is 
erase all content and settings. So hmm. just like we have on iOS, now we have that on the Mac and it will do all of the things that uh, that we want it to do. I'm curious. I have not done this yet for anyone that has. Uh, you know, we were talking last week about the best way to prep a Mac for sale. And, uh, you know, what what we suggested was to uh, wipe it completely, reinstall a new OS and then shut it off when it gets to the point where it starts to ask you, you know, the initial questions about logging into this OS for the first time so that the new user gets that pristine, clean experience. I wonder if this gets that same experience. Like I assume this wipes out user accounts and everything and forces you to start from scratch. So I'd be curious to hear from anybody that's, that's attempted this. If, uh, if in fact that's what happens. So thank you for that, <laughs> Dr. Mac. Yeah. Pretty cool. Okay. Well, it's nice that they, because yeah, but we, we pointed out that Apple has an article uh, saying, okay, here's the 10 things you got to do. Right. And this might collapse it into one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this would also log you out of your like, will this disable find my Mac? Will this log you out of your Apple Music account so that you're not using a slot for that machine anymore? Like, I wonder how how that goes. As Kiwi Graham in the chat room reminds us that uh, for for years now, you know, the operating system is uh, inviolable, untouchable. Uh, and it's on a separate volume, right? It's on the system volume. So you don't need to reinstall. You just wipe the data volume effectively. I'm not suggesting that anybody go out and wipe the data volume. It would be a good experiment, but know that it may fail miserably for you. But go wipe the data volume in whatever way that's appropriate. And then, boom, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got an OS. I need a data volume. I'll create one. I'll ask the user to log in. Good to go. So that may be all it's doing, KiwiGram. Yeah. In fact, that may be all it's doing on iOS, too, for that matter. Uh, Andrew War posted at Mac Observer, I'll say this morning, we're actually recording this on uh, Thursday morning, uh, that Verizon has added a bunch of new mobile hotspots uh, and hotspot plans, most importantly, to their offering. So they have four plans now uh, that uh, that work either with 5G or 4G LTE, and you get uh, 15 gigs for 20 bucks a month. 50 gigs for 40, 100 gigs for 60, and then you can get unlimited um, for either 80 if you're a Verizon customer on an unlimited plan or 110 if you are not a Verizon customer in an, in any other way. Uh, you get uh, and really what this unlimited is defined as is 150 gigs of premium mobile hotspot data and then unlimited past that at lower speed. So uh, the, both of these plan or all four of these plans require a uh, a mobile hotspot device, as as Verizon calls them, MiFi's. Uh, they have two that they are recommending. The 5G version is 400 bucks and the uh, LTE version is 200 bucks. And uh, and of course, they'll let you finance those as well. But uh, but I think that's it's cool. It like this. Oh, there's more doors opening for. At home, 5G, at home, you know, wireless for your, but also for traveling, right? I mean, like the, there's both of the, both of those use cases are very much uh, the, you know, things that would work here. So pretty cool. I was, I was, you know, that's why we call it cool stuff found because we found it. It was cool. 
Yeah. Actually, I just got an email from them. I'll have to consider this. They're like, hey, guess what? You're old. So we'll give you a discount on an unlimited data plan. Yeah, I th- you told us about that last time. I thought you did it. Um, eh, <laughs> I don't really need it. Change is hard for you. I get it. I, it's, I, well, told, but I totally the, get But it. the thing is, I, I never, I don't exceed my right. current cap right now. And, and would the price, would your net price go up to, to go to this, even though they're giving you a discount on the unlimited? Yeah, I think right now, I think my plan is 40. And how much and if data I go to do you this get? One, it, um, I get um, five gigs, but they have rollover. And then yeah. they also have their up, um, their, their like kind of rewards plan. Sure. And every now and then I'll, you know, every month they're like, hey, you know, you, you can get a reward. And I'm like, oh, well, give me, give me another gig of data. Got it. And then they have the rollover. But I've never exceeded my, um, I've never exceeded my uh, data uh, other than that disaster that I had, I think sure. I told you about. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Huh. Well, you're overpaying massively. I mean, if you if you wanted to pay half that, right? So you're paying forty bucks a month. If you paid half that mm. with Mint Mobile, you'd get ten gigs of data per month at twenty bucks. Or mm-hmm. If you paid, if you wanted to, if you only wanted their four gig plan, that's 15 bucks a month. They used to be a sponsor here. They are not uh, currently a sponsor of the show, but our mintmobile.com slash MGG link still works to get you those prices. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, man. I, we moved to mint last year. I mean, we've been talking about it for years, but like the whole family, we moved to mint and it was like a mistake that we had not done that years prior. It works great and it saves us. And we're saving thousands of dollars a year. So I highly nice. recommend it. Yeah. In fact, you can get Mint's unlimited plan for 30 bucks a month. So less than you're currently paying for five gigs with Verizon. So, mm. I, and you bring your number with you. It took us like 20 minutes. It, it was super easy. Highly recommend it. Uh, and I say that as a user, not as a, a paid spokesperson, because I'm no longer mm. a paid spokesperson. <laughs> so. All right. Uh, John, listener John, has a cool stuff found for us. Listener John tells us about Tiny Pilot. Uh, the problem that he wants to solve is that he has an M1 Mini with File Vault turned on, and it runs as his Plex server. He had to move out of his house for seven weeks due to construction, but left the Mini headless, connected to his network and a UPS. Occasionally, the power there for the construction is cut for so long that the UPS runs out and the mini has to restart and require a manual login. He says, I also have a Raspberry Pi connected near the mini. Do you see any issues if I use the Pi to act as a Bluetooth keyboard for the mini so that I can SSH or screen share remotely and then enter the password to log in? And he says, after some Googling, I found Tiny Pilot, which does exactly this. It essentially turns your Raspberry Pi into a network connected like KVM switch that you could access from anywhere uh, and and do this. So I'll put a link to Tiny Pilot in uh, in the show notes, of course. Thanks, John, for asking and answering your own question. I would not have had that answer. Maybe a little Googling uh, would have found it for us. But uh, but John's Google foo was good and found Tiny Pilot. So 
That's not a bad thing to have a, a way of, of doing that. That's, I like this idea. If you're going to have a server running file vault, I feel like something like tiny pilot is almost mandatory so that you can, you know, mess with it remotely. So pretty cool, huh? Indeed. Yeah. All right. Uh, A couple more cool stuff's found Jason, actually a few more, if I'm being accurate, Jason tells us about thread reader app, which is a Twitter bot uh, that helps read threads and makes things easier for sharing and reading Uh, to trigger it. You just have to reply or quote any tweet of the thread you want to unroll and mention at thread reader app with the unroll keyword and boom, you get a link back and good to go. So you can read all about it at threadreaderapp.com. But, uh, but thank you for that, Jason. Very good. Nice stuff. Nice stuff. All right. I have, uh, I have a follow-up cool stuff found. Then we have, then we have a fun one. Then we'll talk about our ads and stuff. Uh, the follow-up cool stuff found is we talked about later case, uh, Boy, it sounds like later Hosen, doesn't it? No, it's L-A-T-E-R case, later case on the show recently. And they sent me one of these things. And the listener who told us about it said it's great because it feels like you don't have a case on your phone. These cases are made of Kevlar and uh, are super thin and uh, and really do like when they when they put it on your phone. And for those of you watching the video, I'm uh, doing that now and I'll have uh, we'll we'll put this out as a separate video, too. You can see just how thin this case is. Now, Kevlar, lightweight, very, very strong. So very likely to protect from any sort of physical scratching damage, those sorts of things. What it likely will not protect very uh, as well as some other cases against is drop protection. It doesn't really have any, um, you know, cushioning or anything like that in it. So I'm sure it protects from drops more than the phone would be protected on its own but not as much as, you know, a case that's built for drop protection and actually has like corner, uh, you know, corner cushions and things like that. This case does protect all four corners. Um, you can see, you know, it, it protects, uh, protects them quite well, in fact. So, and super thin, like it just, and it's got, it's funny. It, 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 this is intentional in their design to my fingers. It's very grippy. Like I, it, it, my phone doesn't want to slip. But to my my pockets of my, you know, pants and jeans and shorts, it slides right in and out. It's not catching on anything. So the way they've they've sort of made the 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 surface of this Kevlar, uh, it, it, it really seems to work out. So uh, later case, and I believe that's going to be at latercase.com if I am not mistaken. It is latercase.com. So you can check that out, too. OK, Fun. and it looks like your accessories should go through it. Absolutely. MagSafe works fine through it. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I just searched here. Kevlar is a heat resistant and strong synthetic fiber. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that, right. It's not metal. It's not blocking, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, chi or anything like that. So yeah. Yeah. It's a nice little thing. I kind of like it. Uh, all right. And then, uh, our last cool stuff found comes from listener Bruce. Uh, it's for those of us that have M1 Max uh, and are missing the noise of the fan. And it's called FanFan at fanfan.rambo.codes. 
And it is a little app that when you activate it, it makes a sound out of your speakers that I swear to you, the first place I did this was on the couch on my MacBook Air. I just happened to be reading through your emails and, uh, and I saw this. And I'm like, oh, cool. Let me install it. Let me see what it's like. And as soon as I turned it on, you know, and remember, this is the couch that I've sat on for years with many prior iterations of MacBook Airs, all of which had fans, all of which would get plenty loud whenever I was doing anything on the couch, including my 2018 MacBook Air, which is literally the same form factor as what I have. In fact, I have the same case on it. So uh, as soon as I turned on this thing, I, I felt like my legs should be getting hot. Like I, 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 I naturally did this motion of like moving my legs apart to give the machine more like it was very much a visceral reaction. So the sound is accurate is what I'm trying to say. And it very and my wife even looked over and she's like, what is that? Like, cause she knows that the machine doesn't have any fans in it. I'm like, Oh, it's a new little app. She's like, that sounds stupid. I'm like, it's awesome. So if you're missing that experience, uh, you can, you can get, uh, you can get this, uh, for free. You could also get yourself maybe like a, a heating pad to put under your computer. I don't recommend this, but if you maybe you, you put it on your legs and, and, you know, put something else in between, you don't want to heat up your computer unnecessarily. But, you know, if you really want to go through the old experience, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. John, how about we uh, we take a minute and talk about our sponsors? Absolutely. All right. If you're a small business owner like me, you know that today, many of us small business owners are busier, nay, more productive than ever. And all that time that we have to spend searching for and interviewing the wrong candidates for a job opening could be time better spent growing our businesses. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get the candidates worth interviewing faster. And it's free. It's true. Look, you know, we just hired Sadie to do all this uh, social and promotional work for us. We use LinkedIn jobs and it was super easy. In fact, I started by thinking, oh, I'll just reach out on my socials or whatever. Like we have a decent following and stuff. We do the show. No, no, no. I should have done the LinkedIn jobs thing. Quite frankly, I should have done it a year prior. Take the lesson from me, folks. Use LinkedIn jobs. And now you get to do it for free. You get to create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 750 million people. And you can focus on candidates with the skills and experience that you need. Well, and then you get to use simple tools on LinkedIn jobs to filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Yeah, I know. So go now. Go and post your job for free at linkedin.com slash MGG. Go try it out. That's linkedin.com slash MGG to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And our thanks to LinkedIn Jobs for sponsoring this episode. Next up is Text Expander. Look, Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so that you can focus on what matters most. We were just talking about being efficient about things. Text Expander fits this mold perfectly. I'm obsessed about accuracy and efficiency. Anybody that listens to the show knows this. Well, sometimes those things are hard to reconcile at the same time. Text Expander is one of those magic tools that makes it possible to do both accuracy 
and efficiency. Because with Text Expander, you get to say goodbye to all that repetitive text entry, all those spelling and message errors, and even just trying to remember the right thing to say. Have you ever thought, oh man, I know I said this right the last time, and then you spend 20 minutes looking through your outbox to find that email. Don't do that anymore. Take the magic text, put it into Text Expander, and then you can invoke it whenever you want in the future. It's right there. You get to take your time back and increase your productivity. And because you're a listener here of Mac Geek Gab, you get 20% off your first year. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more again. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. Our thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring this episode. All right, look. If you dread looking at your credit card statements, you're not alone. So many Americans experienced financial hardship in the last year, and our sponsor Upstart can help you regain your footing and get things back on track. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, and you get to do it all online. So whether it's paying off those credit cards or just consolidating high-interest debt in general or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit because unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. And it's all done with this five-minute online rate check that you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash MGG. That's upstart.com slash MGG. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Again, go to upstart.com slash MGG, and our thanks to Upstart for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, let's go to some questions here. You've got one. Well, you've got one from John, right? Yes, and I ran into this uh, a while back, but... um. Hi, guys. I get the following on startup of my iMac, Retina 4K, 21.5 inch, 2017, running Big Sur. And uh, something comes up and it says error. Finder 11.4 version 1350.5.3 has not been tested with the plugin Sino Mac Context Menu 1.0 as a precaution it has not been loaded. Please contact the plugin developer for further information. Um, and I remember getting this error quite a while ago. Um, but the place you want to look is system preferences, extensions, finder extensions, and disable anything that looks Synology like would be my recommendation. I wonder if uh, he had, do you think he had like an old version of a Synology extension there? Cause I have one and I don't get that error. Um, I think, it was part of, yeah, it's a contextual menu, but I, I think that they didn't clean it up properly when you upgraded uh, to a newer Got version. It. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Of the OS. Um, and I actually found a, you know, we'll link to this little thread here, but I, I did find something on Apple discussions that basically talked mm. about this exact issue. Um, the other thing is that you could go to home library application support Synology and maybe whack anything that's in there. Sure. Yeah. Just be aware that you may be whacking something that you use. Um, so 
you know, bear that in mind. But you could, in theory, you could also search the drive for whatever that error is. In his case, Cinomac context menu, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And see if, you know, if you find that somewhere and then, and then just like specifically delete that. And if you find multiple instances, look at the get info for it at the version number, because this is saying it's version 1.0. So maybe that, you know, again, could help you narrow down what to remove and, and what to leave in place. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. pretty good. I like it. I like it. More on that, or are we good to move on? Moving on. Listener Bob has uh, spent a little time uh, for with us, for us, explaining garbage collection, trim, and how it all relates to SSDs. So, um, as Bob explains, SSDs need pre-cleaned sectors to write into. This is this is where we were dabbling into this uh, in the in last week's episode, where we were saying that you know SSDs can't write to a sector that has data in it. It needs to be cleaned first, pre-cleaned. The SSD keeps a pool of pre-cleaned sectors. SSD garbage collection does the pre-cleaning. When a write happens, the old logical sector gets put onto the garbage collection queue and the selected pre-cleaned sector written to gets the old logical address. Ah, okay. So there's a map that between the physical um, sectors and then the logical sectors and the map gets updated when something is uh, is rewritten. That makes sense. This is the part I and, and, and he explains it well, but now is the part I didn't realize, John. SSDs cannot clean a single sector. Physical sectors are divided into clusters on an SSD, and an entire cluster must be pre-cleaned at the same time. Pre-cleaning a cluster means that no sector in the cluster can hold in-use file system data. If a cluster is chosen for pre-cleaning and there is valid file system data in the cluster, then the SSD needs to read each one of those in-use sectors and write them somewhere else. This is background I.O. activity that slows the SSD down, of course. SSDs are therefore over-provisioned with extra sectors by several gigabytes, so that even if the file system fills the entire SSD, there are still unassigned sectors that can be used for these writes. These over-provisioned sectors can also act as spares when a sector will no longer hold data when one goes bad. Trim, now that we know all that, trim is the agreement between the file system and the SSD. When trim is enabled, the file system will tell the SSD the logical addresses of deleted sectors via special trim commands. The SSD can then put each of those into the garbage collection queue for pre-cleaning. Otherwise, it sort of has to guess at this. If the file system does not tell the SSD about deleted files, then the SSD does not have any idea that the deleted file storage is available for pre-cleaning. As far as the SSD is concerned, those sectors contain valuable data, even if the file system and the user consider it trash. It is trim and the agreement between the file system and the SSD that allows the SSD to pre-clean those sectors from the deleted file. Without trim, eventually the file system will touch all the sectors of the SSD, even the free space, uh, and SSDs don't know that. But with trim enabled, the SSD now has all the file system's free space, as well as its over-provisioned sectors available for pre-cleaning. So instead of a few gigabytes, that can be hundreds of gigabytes or even a terabyte of pre-cleaned sectors when, a, when users decide to do huge multi-gigabyte writes, the SSD will have lots of pre-cleaned sectors. So this is why with trim-enabled, garbage collection can ignore cleaning clusters that have just a few in-use sectors for a longer period of time. 
Ah, this makes sense now. Okay, so Trim allows it to be way more efficient because it knows. And I knew that Trim was this agreement, but I didn't understand this sector um, uh, versus cluster thing. So that thank you for this, Bob. Very, very good stuff. Uh, I appreciate it. That's great. Hopefully that makes sense to you folks. If it doesn't, let us know. Feedback at MacKeyCab.com. We can dig deeper into that and, and explain it a little better perhaps. But uh, I think Bob did a good job. Hopefully I didn't screw it up. Did you say feedback at MacKeyCab.com? I said feedback at MacKeyCab.com. That's exactly right. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that's where everybody sent everything in so far, except for the people at live.MacKeyCab.com. So, yeah. Um, listener Jeff brings us into some networking interestingness. Jeff wrote in and says, um, a few months ago, I must have checked some box in my Mac settings. And what it has done is that in Safari, ads are blocked on websites and in Apple email. Links are blocked. Sometimes even trying to visit a link, I can't because it's on this blocked list. This is not limited to Safari. I get similar issues in both Firefox and Chrome, as I said, also in Mail. Uh, so it's not related to a single web browser settings. This behavior is not being seen on my iPhone or iPad Pro or any other device on my network. It is limited to my Mac, but it is system-wide on my Mac. I've searched through system preferences and haven't found what I might have checked to start this behavior. I've also gone through Clean My Mac X also, but I don't see anything in there. Any help? Thanks, and please don't get caught. Yeah, I know um, I know what it is, John. And it's the, the uh, where... Where listener Jeff needs to look is in his uh, what I'll call Etsy hosts file, which is in slash ETC slash hosts. This generally needs to be edited as a super user. So if you're editing from the terminal, uh, you could use the sudo command. If you're editing from the finder, it will probably ask you when you go to save it to authenticate. Uh, or if you're, you know, if you're opening it up in text edit or something, uh, it'll ask you to authenticate when you go to save it. This file by default has about six lines in it uh, that map to localhost and and one other thing, I believe. What um, and when Jeff looked in his, he found that it had five hundred and sixty three thousand lines, most of which. So the way Etsy hosts, um, what Etsy hosts does, if you look at Etsy hosts, you will have lines with essentially two items per line separated by either a space or a tab. The first thing is an IP address. The second thing is a name. So uh, it's a it's sort of like a it, not sort of it is a DNS bypass. Right. So the first thing you'll see there is 127.0.0.1 and then a tab and then localhost. Uh, what that says is that if someone looks for the address localhost, redirect them to 127.0.0.1 and do not check with any other resource. I am telling you the truth. So Etsy host becomes the primary truth of this. If you know that you want to connect to a certain server, let's say you um, your router doesn't do DNS for your local devices, but you know that your uh, iMac in the kitchen is 192.168.1.14, right? You've got a IP address mapped to that. Great. But you don't want to have to type that every time you want to type iMac kitchen. Well, you could go into the Etsy host file on all your Macs and type in 192.168.1.14 and then a space or a tab. And then either one is fine. And then iMac Kitchen. And now if you go into your web browser and you say iMac Kitchen and your 
iMac in the kitchen is set to answer when a web browser visits it, then it will answer your Mac because your Mac is just going straight to that address. So it's like your own little per Mac DNS hack. What you can also use this for is for ad blocking because of those half a million entries that Jeff had, most of them, all except about four, had 0.0.0.0 as their IP address to begin with. So that when you tried to go to, say, adserver1.backbeatmedia.com, uh, which I'm sure was in his list, uh, instead it goes to 0.0.0.0. That's a defunct address. It's dead. The Mac knows this. It doesn't waste its time. It fails, and it can't load any resources from that address. And so ads don't appear. But it also will fail if you tried to, say, visit that in a web browser for other reasons or any of the other myriad listing uh, or listed entries there. And so deleting those either en masse or uh, one by one for the, the places you want to visit is really the only way to get around that. Um, he said he said he found something that um, he told us what it was, and I don't seem to have it here but he found something i think it was a cool stuff found maybe that that somebody had sent into the show that was this list of all of these ip addresses so if you have those problems check your etsy host file and then you know take the the um the the, the additional tip that we just shared and you know give yourself some uh some names for your for your other devices so thoughts on that john um i looked at mine and mine's pretty thin so yeah yeah, I, I mean, I have I probably have 15 entries in my Etsy host file, mm. but well, but I use them, you know, if I need to check the Mac Observer server directly without going through any of the the caching or proxying that we use to to help speed things up, then I uh, uncomment the line that brings me to the IP address for www.macobserver.com. And then I know that my Mac is visiting that directly. Uh, it's not it's not going through any of the caches and I can see like it's you know, it's good for troubleshooting or or uh, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, is there a problem? Yes. OK, where's the problem? Is the problem living in the cache? Is the problem living on the server. Great. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's very helpful. I again, I use it a lot for development, too. If you want to, you know, if you want to um, have a site that's up but not up. Just don't put it in your your DNS entries uh, in your main DNS and just put it, you know, on your thing. So, you know, we might have like, um, I don't know, beta test server dot whatever macobserver.com that doesn't exist. But you could you could put that in there and map it to an IP and then it does exist only for you. So, yeah, fun stuff. Good. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on up. All right. To the east side. To the east side. (laughs) That's right. We're on the east side of the country, so we're moving so on. Deluxe apart in the sky. Yeah, <laughs> beans don't burn on the grill, man. Uh, okay. <laughs> Listener Ben has a related question that I think is going to be a geek challenge. It sounds like somebody's using a leaf blower next to you, John. So I'm, I'm riding. Um, I'm riding your volume here today. Yeah, I. Yeah, I'm muting as appropriate here. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Maybe I should go and shake my fist at him. We like shaking our fists in anger. It's good. Yeah, yeah. All right. Listener Ben uh, has has a question that we've sort of been bouncing back and forth between uh, a couple of other listeners, listener Ari and, uh, and me and Ben. But Ben says, uh, with a client, he says, I have a weird network issue that I'm troubleshooting for this client, and I'd love your insight. It's a 2017 MacBook uh, running Big Sur. 
uh, though the issue was occurring before the upgrade to Big Sur on High Sierra as well. When on his home network and only on his home network, Fred cannot make any network connections from his main user account. That includes websites in any of his browsers, Safari, Firefox, Opera, as well as joining Zoom meetings. I had him create a new user account and all online activities work fine. Additionally, all network activities work fine from the main account when Fred is on other Wi-Fi networks. So obviously something is running on this machine at the user level that's preventing network access. But why is it only affecting a his home network and b just his user account? Any idea how I troubleshoot this? It just occurred to me that I should probably do a ping test in terminal next time I speak with Fred. Um, I did have him try setting a custom DNS server, but that didn't help. Okay, so it's not the DNS server that's set. Um, I, I agree that that pinging either other local devices or the the known IP address do a DNS lookup on another machine for something like www.apple.com uh, and then ping the IP address that comes up to see is this a network issue or is it a DNS issue? Uh, the aforementioned Etsy host file from the prior uh, question with Jeff wouldn't really apply because that's a system-wide thing. That, that's read the same for every user. And that's the weird part of this, John, right? Is most of the networking stack remains system-wide. So I'm a little confused as to what it could be. I, I guess I, it, it is possible that a network related utility could be set to filter when on a specific Wi-Fi network, right? So would, would little snitch be able to be configured in this way that, you know, when I'm on a certain Wi-Fi network, do something differently, redirect all DNS to a certain spot. I, I, I don't know the answer here. Um, but that, you know, that's what I would look for if I were there is like what's in startup items, what's in launch agents. Uh, you know, is there anything related to the network there? Um, Hog Molly, again, in the in the chat room, I would blow away the stored Wi-Fi settings for the network in question and then add it back. That's not a bad idea. Again, that stuff is system wide, but but, you know, but it's also synced with um with iCloud keychain, or at least sometimes synced with iCloud keychain, if we, as we've discussed. Uh, so, and then Kiwi Graham adds that device management may be locked on a particular Wi-Fi network and user. Oh, so check, um, check system preferences profiles, oh, right. And see what you've got there. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, the other thing that occurs to me, um, Ping desktop um, will often give me notifications as to what's happening network-wise. Okay, yep. And that every now and then, it, it'll come up with an error saying, oh, yeah, your your ISP's DNS is, is being stupid. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, but, it, but yeah, yeah, fair, fair, fair. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. I found a, um, I found a thing in my, do you have any other thoughts on this? I, I have a tangent. I'm going to take no. us on, but uh, I don't want to mess with anything. Okay. Here. Um, there, I, when I looked in my profiles, system preferences, profiles on this computer, John, 
I see something that says enable unified log private data. And it says that the developer ID is George Garside from georgegarside.com. And the details of the profile, and I love that it shows this so that you know exactly what's happening, is that the managed client logging uh, section has the enable private data equals one uh uh, option there. And I, I remember doing this. This is not some awful thing. Uh, when they, when Apple changed the console app in Sierra, uh, the logging mesh mechanism changed and there were not separate files for individual logs, but, but everything just got dumped into one unified logging mechanism and centralized there. But the problem is that there were a lot of things that would show up as private in this unified log because they weren't user specific anymore. And so it, like it would just hide things, but when troubleshooting stuff, it got really difficult to see what you were seeing because it was being hidden from you with private. And this entry will unprivatize those things. It will allow private data to show up in the unified log. And uh, you can build your own profile to do this. But the beauty is that that George Garside uh, built one for us. And so uh, I, I evidently installed that back then, probably to troubleshoot something because it was driving me crazy. Um, and uh, and now it's there forever. I don't know if we still need it in Big Sur. I'm assuming we probably do. Um, but uh, but it's there. So I'll, I'll put a link in the in the show notes to to George's website so that uh Others can see this thing, but I was surprised to see profiles it, like system preferences. Profiles won't exist in your system preferences unless you have a profile installed, at least one, right? It's hidden otherwise. So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. I don't know. What, what's next, John? What, what do we have here? You want to take us to Jose? Is that what's next? Uh, let's go to Jose. Okay. Jose says when using subfolders in the notes app, on iOS and Mac OS, the parent folder displays a number to represent how many notes there are in the parent folder only and excludes the number of notes in the subfolder. Therefore, if no note is added at the parent folder level, it displays a zero. This is where I got caught. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I deleted a parent folder because the zero that was displayed made me think it was an empty folder when there were actually six subfolders under it. Since the parent folder was not expanded at the time, I didn't see the six subfolders. I think the parent folder should display the total number of notes, including those in subfolders, instead of only the number of notes in the parent folder. Another solution could be to not have the parent folder behave like a note as well. This would be akin to how the finder displays the number of items inside a folder. I just thought I'd share this so no one else gets caught with misleading information displayed on the parent folder mm. and note. Um, yes, uh, that does seem like a UI UX oopsie on Apple's part. Um, the good news is that you should be able to restore the deleted items per this little ditty that I found on the Apple support site. So cool. What's, what's all, the way of doing that? Is there, is there a, like a way we can describe without forcing people to go read uh, an Apple article. Um, I think you uh, let me. Uh, 
Let's see. What happens to my delete? If you delete a note that's stored on your Mac, it's moved to the recently deleted folder and you can view and recover notes in the recently yes. deleted folder for up to 30 days. If you use upgraded iCloud notes, deleted notes are moved to the recently deleted folder for that iCloud account. Uh, after, after that time, notes are permanently deleted from all your devices and that may take up to 40 days. So, okay. So you've got time. Yeah. The recently deleted folder is, I suppose the, Okay. Yeah, and I I I, I did verify that. I I fiddled with this, and uh, if you delete a note, all of a sudden this new folder appears called mm. recently or deleted notes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Cool. All right. Uh, knocking them down here. Let's go to Andrew and see if we can help him. He says uh, I attempted to install eleven point five on a twenty seventeen macbook pro after it seemed to reboot it became stuck in a cycle that automatically rebooted and took me to recovery mode uh, in other words it won't boot to the login credential screen and any attempt from recovery mode or holding down the option key at boot and choosing the volume just eventually reboots back into recovery mode the only error i recall is that seeing that user data could not be migrated okay fair uh, this sounds sort of bad and i wondered how i can rectify this situation also it won't allow me to reinstall from recovery mode as after reboot, it's still stuck going to recovery mode as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, it seems like your user data is either missing or corrupted in a way that when the OS try, remember before we were ta- earlier in the episode, we were talking about how the system partition and the user partition are separate. And so the system partition seems like it's fine. The recovery partition also seems like it's fine. But when it starts to touch the user partition, it hits a wall and comes back. So something out there is not good. Uh, You've effectively confirmed that by using the recovery partition to reinstall what's on the system partition. And the same thing happens. So definitely points to errors on the user partition. And of course, that's what you saw at some point with your... um, with with this installation so what i would do if i were there which is generally the way i approach any kind of question that we get uh what i would do next is i would back up the user data off of that volume you might have to use target disk mode to do this but get whatever you can if you already have a clone of that great then you don't need to worry about trying to figure it out you're already good uh but get that backup somewhere on a on a drive that is easily plugged into this machine and then using recovery mode don't just reinstall the OS, erase the uh, the the volume and reinstall a clean OS onto it. That will also erase the data volume, right? From there, it should boot up like a brand new uh, operating system because you've blown away the data volume uh, and the system volume, but then you've reinstalled. It would be nice if we could do what Dr. Mac was telling us before in the episode, right, to just blow away the data volume. Um, and maybe this is a good opportunity to experiment with that. Uh, but whatever, you're, you know, get to the point where you don't have a data volume anymore and the system is forced to recreate it. Uh, usually that's part of also blowing away the installation. Maybe that changes in Monterey. Maybe there's other ways to do it, but that's how I would do it. Blow it away, reinstall the OS with recovery mode. And then uh, at that point, I would say feel free to try using migration assistant from the backup that you have from the other drive, slurping in all your data. Hopefully whatever's wrong will be overlooked by migration assistant at that point, And it'll just pull in whatever it can 
and leave you w- with hopefully a very, uh, you know, capable and working machine. That's what I would do. What do you think, John? Uh, I recall running into a similar situation at one point and mm-hmm. yeah, the solution was blow it away. Uh, you know, first make sure you make a backup <laughs> right, <laughs> or a clone. But yeah, I, I've, I've had a couple of cases where I'm like, okay, something in the partition table or the volume table or whatever just didn't make it. So, um, start from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. All right. Um, Tony has one, John. I am, um, I'm curious to see if we get an answer to this. We might not get one while we're talking here. We might need to wait for you to help us with this geek challenge feedback at MacGeekCab.com. But let's see where we go. Tony says, I have a small but irritating problem that I can't seem to solve. I'm running the latest version of Big Sur 11.5.1 on a late 2020 M1 MacBook Air but I don't think the model of the machine is relevant. The problem, I am unable to change my user photo, go into contacts, go to your card, go to mail, system preferences, Apple ID, doesn't matter. I cannot change it. Uh, I have successfully changed the photo on the iCloud web interface, on my iPad and on my iPhone for this Apple ID, but on the Mac, I've tried safe boots. I've tried reinstalling the OS. I've tried hunting down and trashing all the cache and preference files I could find or think of. And yes, I've logged out of and back into my Apple ID slash iCloud account from the Mac. I changed the photo. It's there for about one to two seconds. And then it reverts to the previous one. This happens if I try to change the photo in system preferences, mail or contacts. After logging out and back into my Apple account, the new desired photo remains on the iCloud page and my other devices. So I'm pretty sure the problem is specific to this Mac. Yeah, it's clear the Mac isn't pushing it to iCloud, nor is it pulling it from iCloud, right? He says it's probably as simple as a cache file, but which one? I have heard of this problem before. Tony is not the first person to write in with this. I don't recall that we've ever solved it. Um but I have definitely heard of it. It's possible I've even seen it. Like Tony said, it's, it's, you know, small, but irritating. So it's one of those things that, uh, after a little while, you just like, well, whatever, you know, I'm done. I'm moving on. I'm using my computer. But if anybody knows, or John, if you have any, like, where would you look for this? Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at my contact. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you go to your contact card. Yeah. There's you, you float over your picture and it says edit. Um, I wonder. So, okay. So I wonder if changing, like creating a new contact card and then making that new one, your, my contact, right? I, I mean, it's, you're right. It's getting stuck somewhere and it's somewhere that is unique to that particular Mac. Now I realize contacts are also synced, but if that sync is failing, Try. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's what I would try. You, you just make a new card and then go to the card menu and say, make this my card. And I would say even before you, uh, you know, before you do that, before you make it your card, mm. change the photo on it to see what, you know, what you can get to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Now the other thing I see here. So yeah. So if you go to your, 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 my card and then, click on edit and then click on edit again, you get current defaults camera. Maybe take a new photo. 
oh, you click on edit of the card and then edit again, meaning edit on your actual mm -hmm. picture. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. And then I see here, like I see, and I've never, I haven't been here in ages. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, there are, yeah. Current defaults, camera and photos. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe try a different option other than selecting the photo. I don't know why it's reversing what you do. Well, yeah, I mean, there's something on the Mac that's just saying, no, this is newer, right? Like, for whatever reason. It's it's the classic um, sync conflict resolution issue that play. It's a difficult thing to do, right, to um, mm -hmm. to deal with that. So, yeah. But yeah. from a programming standpoint, it's conflict resolution in, in any kind of data stores is not easy. So, yeah. I mean, the other thing that occurs to me could be a permissions Thing. So maybe spin up this utility and do a little first aid action. Yeah, but permissions aren't part of aren't part of first aid ah, anymore. I mean, they right, haven't right, been right. part of first aid in seven mm. years or something, right? Like we don't get to do that anymore, which mm. which sucks because sometimes permissions mm. are the issue, right? So, yeah, yep, yeah. It would be nice if we could repair permissions. Um, but with the system volume on a separate volume, I, I think that that's part of where Apple says, yeah, mm -hmm. no, but, but there can be permissioning issues. Like just because we don't get repair permissions anymore, doesn't mean that there aren't permissioning issues. You could be very correct about this. So, uh, you know, the trick would be finding the file and changing its permissions. Uh, another thing you could do a thought, um, if it, moving down the path or, or staying on the path, pulling on the thread that it is contacts, that's the issue mm -hmm. do uh, in the contacts app, go to file export contacts archive and then mm. delete all of your contacts. And I would do this on multiple places, right? Save a contacts archive from if you have a second Mac or, or whatever, so that you truly get everything that's in iCloud uh, blow away. You, all your contacts are certainly your, my card. And then, import that back in because if your contacts database itself is corrupted or has a permissions issue or something like that, where it, it simply won't let it be changed, blowing it away and, and pulling the data back into it would fix that. So that'd be, mm -hmm. yeah, I like it. It's good. It's good. Uh, all right. We got a few more things we can talk about here. Uh, listener Simon has, well, they're all interesting, aren't they? Uh, listener Simon says, I am missing audio devices. Um, it works in the evening when watching an online streaming service. The next day, I come to run a Zoom meeting only to find Zoom telling me there are no audio devices found. When I check system preferences in one of those moments, lo and behold, nothing is listed in input and sometimes even in output. After a reboot, all is well and works fine for another 24 hours. This occurs on an almost daily basis. Any ideas? Surely it can't be hardware as it comes back to life after a reboot. This is happening on the latest version of Mac OS running an M1 Air. So, yeah, you're right. I don't think it's hardware. I think it's software. Uh, core audio can get particular. And if it has too many things trying to tell it what to do that conflict with each other, uh, it will just wipe out you know, that list and, and display no audio devices when asked. Essentially, that's what's happening, right? When you open system preferences and go to sound and go to either input or output, 
uh, the OS is actually asking another part of the OS. Give me the list of all of the currently available audio devices that are either input devices or output devices. Right. And so core audio is the part of the OS that, uh, that is responsible for answering that question. And clearly it's just dying and not answering that question. So zooming out a little bit, do you have anything running or installed that might be affecting your core audio back, you know, background processes? Uh, Zoom could be at issue here because Zoom installs. If you tell Zoom to share your screen and share your Mac's audio. So if you wanted to like play a movie on your Mac and, and have people hear the audio from that, uh, if you want to have your Mac's audio shared over Zoom, it installs another device. Right. So it's like the Zoom audio, whatever, something or other. Uh, I don't want to mess with it now because I don't want to mess with core audio mm. while we're doing a podcast. I've learned that lesson the hard way. Mm. Uh, so I'm not going to do it. But there is something in there. Uh, so removing that and um, we'll find a link to removing Zoom's audio device. Maybe somebody in the chat room can find it. If not, we'll find it after the show. But I'll, I'll put a link in, in here because they. I think they're they're stored in in like your drive and then library audio. Where's audio here? I think that's where they're stored. Plugins may no, not plugins may. I might be, I forget where it is. I'm not going to drive everybody through it right now. We'll, we'll, we'll find a link to removing third party audio devices. Uh, zoom audio device is the one and we'll find that link for you. Uh, but that might be part of, uh, part of the answer here. So uh, it's just removing that and any others that you find. Um, also look at any third party devices that you have or third party apps that you have that manipulate audio. So that would be things like boom, uh, which is a thing from, I forget the name of the company, but it enhances the way your audio sounds. But again, it's, it's messing with core audio. If you're running loopback, if you're running sound source, I mean, the, the, those last two are from mm-hmm. Rogamiba. Those Rogamiba no like if anybody on the planet knows core audio, it's Paul Kafasis and his team at Rogamiba. Like they are definitely the experts uh, as far as audio on the Mac goes, but it doesn't mean that there aren't problems occasionally, especially if they're crashing into other things. So check, are you running anything like that? Any audio enhancement things that might be an issue or do you have any truly physical, you know, audio devices plugged in and and that could be your dock, right? If your dock's got a headphone jack on it, that's another audio device. So try for a day without one of those devices plugged in. Uh, my my gut from reading your email is that it's the like the Zoom device and something's not right. Like maybe there was an update that's now conflicting, and when you run Zoom, it you know it 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 can't see it, tries to, and then you know twists everything in knots. But that's where I would start looking. Uh, is you know maybe check. Ling on uh, again to see if you have any any startup items that are related to audio. Uh, that's where I would look. Um, all right, you have any thoughts, my friend? Uh, you're the audio guy. I am an audio I'm, guy. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I'm looking at my setup here, and yeah, honestly, uh, how do things even get here? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, there. You know, this is that question is the reason that we occasionally recommend a clean install The how do these things even get here? Right. We're geeks. We, you know, 
we spend a lot of time working to continue our expanding our understanding of these things. Right. But even us, like sometimes we look and we're confused about things like, why is this here? What is this? Uh, like that profile that I found earlier in the show. I mean, when I first saw it, I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, what is this? And then I, you know, did a little searching and I was like, oh, I remember. Okay. You know, but just cause you did something doesn't mean you remember why you did it. Mm-hmm. Until until you dig in, right? So, yeah, yeah. Because I'm actually looking here now, and uh, I'm kind of surprised that some of the things I see here, like an output, it shows my monitors type Display Port. Yeah, um, you didn't put that so, there. You plugged in your monitor, yeah, and your monitor <laughs> added that. So, but there you go, right? Like that's another audio device. Yeah. And I didn't even know my monitors had uh, speakers in them. So. Hmm. Yeah, I I have okay. I have one other I- issue question. Uh, it'll be a geek challenge of my own. I have a monoprice display plugged in HDMI to a 2018 Mac Mini, so an Intel Mac Mini. It's the one Lisa uses in the house. This display has speakers in it. I know it. I've gone into the displays menu and I've cranked up the volume. It has HDMI. The the Mac sees that there is an HDMI audio out device, much like you just identified there. And it doesn't matter what I do. I cannot make the Mac make sound out of that device. I select hmm. it and nothing happens. Has anybody else seen this? Let us know. Feedback at MacGeekUp.com. Uh, I think that's that's going to do it for the show, though. That's what we have. That's what I have for today, anyway. We'll see, All right. you, uh, we'll see you next week. We're doing something a little different next week. We're, we're doing some uh, mini dives. Maybe some snorkeling? Is that a, a shallow dive? I don't know. <laughs> or maybe they'll wind up being deep dives. I don't know. We'll find out together when we do this next week. <sighs> All right. You got anywhere to send them, my friend? Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I like it. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Let us know what you got. We will either share it or answer it or share it and answer it. Whatever it takes. The goal is for us all to learn five new things. I hope you learned five new things this episode, folks. I certainly did. Uh, And I realized five things that I don't know. And so I'm going to work on that for the next time. And that's what keeps the show going. So thanks so much for hanging out with us. Thanks for everything. Thanks for all your premium support. Thanks for uh, everything. MacGeekUp.com slash premium is where you can go to support us directly if you like. And And we like that. It really does make a difference. So thank you for that. All right, make sure you check out our sponsors, the three I mentioned in the episode, of course, upstart.com slash MGG, textexpander.com slash podcast, and linkedin.com slash MGG. Of course, you can also go to macgeekup.com slash sponsors to see all those and all the others. John. Any last words of wisdom to share with our friends here today? Um, wisdom. Um, oh, I almost forgot. Don't get caught. Made up.